Greetings, this is your professor, Jennifer Williams, and I want to welcome you to Introduction to African American Studies. What you're listening to right now is basically the lecture portion of your class, and so the lectures are going to be um, not weekly, but weekly or bi-weekly, depending on what part of the syllabus we are on, and they're going to be audio format like this, as well as a visual format, which will be a PowerPoint slide that I'm going to post on Brightspace. You don't necessarily have to listen to them together, but I think it will be best because during the audio part of the uh, lecture, I'm going to be referencing stuff that you could see in the slides. So it's up to you how you want to engage in this format, but this is basically how the class will run for the rest of the semester. So I first want you to, uh, when you look at the syllabus, this lecture for lecture one, which is going to be talking mostly about higher education as well as how we engage in kind of that kind of questioning of the history of higher education is going to be split up into kind of three sections. So this should be in the syllabus, lecture 1A, lecture 1B, and lecture 1C. During the PowerPoint slide part of it, there'll be parts where it says break, and I think those are where the stopping parts actually are, but we'll see how it goes. And you don't necessarily have to listen to these separately, but you'll need the information by the time the class starts, depending on what it says into the syllabus. So this is lecture one. This is your professor, and let's see how this goes. So we're gonna start lecture one with the danger of a single story. The danger of a single story is gonna be kind of the overview of this lecture and connecting both all three segments that you see here, Chimamanda Adichie and the TED Talk, the history of enlightenment, as well as other things in European critical thought, as well as the article that you're supposed to read in conjunction with the section, um, which is chapter two of a book called The Undercommons, and the chapter itself is called The University and the Undercommons. But I want you to start with this idea of worldview. You may have heard this word before, um, worldview, also known as, and there are other ways to say this word, you can say it's somebody's worldview, you can say that it's their philosophy of life, you can say it's their ideology, their lens, their perspective. Ultimately, it's the way in which a person or group views, feels, or thinks about the world. I really want us to think about what the worldview actually means. We usually kind of separate it into this idea of like individuals have a worldview. Um, how, you know, one person, you know, sees the optimist, um, pessimist kind of thing, glass full, glass empty conversation tends to be a worldview type thing. But we want to apply this not just for individuals, but also for cultures, for groups, for any kind of body of people. So when we look at worldview, um, we're looking at things like language, culture, culture, and those mental social constructs that we use to make sense of the world around us, how we interpret what we are seeing, because there are a lot of things in the world, nature, the planets, how the earth moves, um, even computers, and we make sense of it through certain particular patterns, right? 
Um, so it's not just that I see it and the computer is what it is. Um, if I never, you know, if you always say if someone from the past comes forward, they've never seen a computer before, they may say it's like this very interesting window. Uh, if someone, you know, even from 30 years ago saw a computer, they'd be like, this is very fancy television. They would have a different worldview than us in the 20 in 2018 because we have extra information, extra ways that our society has given us, uh, you know, things in order to interpret what the screen of a computer is or what a computer is at all. And so these patterns, the worldview patterns, allow us to orient ourselves and so that we may live in it. So we're not constantly, you know, being stopped essentially by what's going in the world. We can, worldview is our shorthand for what these things are. Our worldviews are maintained, of course, because we are social creatures. Humans tend to um, engage each other in groups. We often are not alone, or at least not, you know, alone for long, because that has a lot of other implications to it. But a worldview are constantly being checked and rechecked by the people that we are around. And so our group interactions are reinforcing these internalized worldviews we have, which is the connection between the personal and the community. And so while these things are always connecting, always being rechecked in each other, being... Um, you know, going, other people are helping us maintain our worldview, as well as we pass the worldviews on to the next generation. Raising children is essentially a process of worldview education. And so when we learn and relearn the worldview during the course of our lives, it is always in flux, but there definitely are some, you know, foundational items of a worldview that everyone carries with them. So with worldview, a worldview makes us answer certain questions differently, certain those big philosophical questions. Uh, Our worldview gives us those kind of tools or patterns or ideas that answer them certain ways. While on the other hand, our worldview makes us ask certain questions that may be different from other people's worldview. So if we go back to kind of the optimist, pessimist kind of conversation, the big philosophical questions you know someone may ask uh what is the nature of reality and a pessimist would say the nature of reality is depression or sadness or something not positive while an optimist would say the nature of reality is to pursue happiness and so um this goes into kind of those more religious or moral uh understandings of the world as well what is a human according to christianity or what is a human according to a scientist or what is a human according to uh, any kind of you know pick your ism kind of thing to a capitalist what is a human to a communist was a human to and then we can go into those questions of what is a human to someone who was raised in uh, australia what is a human to someone who was raised in north dakota and even though authentically people may think those are or think they're answering the questions similarly they may not be because our worldview dictates what we actually think about that how we actually come to a conclusion about those kind of more big philosophical questions 
as I said again, on the other hand, it also makes us ask certain questions differently. And so the questions I have on PowerPoint slide are like, what do you do for a living? And so it's like, we have to backtrack a little bit. What kind of worldview does one have to have that requires you to believe what you do for a living is an important question when you first meet someone. Is it a worldview of someone who believes that your occupation is a valuable thing? Um, Or is it a worldview of someone who is a slacker? And even the idea of me asking like, what is a slacker is something, but I'm going on a tangent with that. But the second question as well, how about that sports ball event last night? I'm being a little bit facetious because I myself am not a sports enthusiast, but even that, what worldview does that person have when the first thing they may ask you is how do you feel about the baseball game or the football game or the basketball game? Their worldview will definitely be dictated by an interest and a valuing of sports. And so even we can be a little bit more, you know, silly with this and kind of being like in their big philosophical questions, what is the nature of their reality would be sports? What is a human would be an athlete? What is right and wrong would be the roles of the game? So we can see that worldview um, is definitely a part of understanding reality. Um, And we, you know, are trained um, from birth with particular worldviews. And so if worldview is making us see certain things differently than others, see the world in a different way, there's also a relationship between worldview and power. So power is the way, you know, you can dictate your influence on other people, um, usually with force or with more soft power kind of things like strong influence, charisma, other things like that. And so historically, when we think about worldview or those bigger worldviews, such as religious worldviews or political worldviews, these things also are dictating what is the dominant worldview of particular, and I'm going to say for this class, geographic regions. And so if we talk about what is the worldview of the United States, we could pinpoint that there's a historical trajectory of how people who are raised in the geographical region that is currently called the United States, um, we can trace that and we can see that it was a dominant um, conversation of force as well as um, people kind of just agreeing that that's the worldview that they would take on. So worldview, just to reemphasize, is um, people can use force and influence to shift the worldview. Um, People didn't always think that, at least for the purposes of this class, that people who were from the continent of Africa were inhuman. That was a new thought, a new thought that we'll talk about a little bit later in this lecture. And so if you see the images that I'm showing you, it's an ad for General Electric that was happened around the 19, I think this was 50s. And so it focuses on a worldview which 
negatively depicts Africana people. It's still selling a product, as you see. Your next range should be General Electric. But the image of Africana person is very um, caricature. It is a overgeneralization and as well as it adds to a grotesqueness um, as that individual is currently eating a piece of fried chicken. This also connects if you have heard the idea that African Americans or black people, um, as this ad pipe would have said, love fried chicken. And other people tend to come, you know, combat that conversation with well, everyone loves fried chicken. But it was used as a stereotype in order to uh, demean and dehumanize Africana people compared to white people. But it's still selling a product using that kind of iconic negative imagery um, of an African person or Africana person eating fried chicken. Because I guess you can eat fried, you can make fried chicken on your General Electric stove. Um, ultimately, this is again that kind of idea of soft power. Soft power to continue a worldview where Africana people are dehumanized is basically the point of the advertisement. Secondly, non-dominant worldviews. So during this time that the ad happened, views that considered Africana people human um, aren't gone. They're never just disappeared. They're usually just suppressed or, you know, put down, which makes some people, particularly people who we will call marginalized individuals, um, they get to see the world with these two different lenses. So they can see the dominant view, the dominant worldview, as well as having their own worldview. Um, this is what W.E.B. Du Bois, and this is someone who you um, are going to read later in the semester, called double consciousness. So double consciousness is literally being able to see the world, see how the world functions as two different ways. For marginalized individuals, it may be looking like one way in which you are human and another world which sees you as not human. And then, you know, as a student even, how do you feel um, if you have that kind of worldview? Or how do you think your colleagues feel having that kind of worldview where... It is a both a negation and a uh, positive of your life, essentially. So this is why worldview is kind of where I'm starting, um, because it really does uh, ask uh, certain things of us in order to talk about the African or Africana experience in the United States as well as in other areas of the world that have been affected by a dominant worldview that, as I'm going to emphasize this word again, dehumanizes them. So we need to really like understand worldview as a whole um, before we get into the specifics of basically why this discipline exists. So if you haven't already, I want you to begin to set up your computer or your phone to watch the TED Talk. The link should be on Brightspace, but you can easily just Google search the danger of a single story and it will definitely be the number one thing that will come up on your search. Uh, the danger of a single story, as I'm saying, is a TED Talk by Nigerian author uh, Chimamande Adichie. 
Uh, she has been around in the limelight for a few years. She is an award-winning author of the books you see on the PowerPoint. One of them, Half of the Yellow Sun, has a film, I think. Other ones are probably being um, green-lighted for other films, but we should see. Uh, she, her, she has two actually famous um, TED Talks. I think the second one's a TED Talk, but it definitely was a famous YouTube clip. Um, danger of a single story and then we all should be feminist or we should all be feminist the we should all be feminist clip uh was in beyonce's music i'm blanking on the song right now and i know this is being recorded and i should be able to look it up but it's in one of the beyonce uh songs flawless there we go and so chamamandia dca received a little bit more acclaim because she was uh found there so when you watch The Danger of a Single Story, I want you to think about the idea of worldview. She gives a few examples um, within her telling of her uh, life story, essentially, about worldview and whose worldview um, affected her literature, as well as how she had to basically untrain herself to focus on a certain type of worldview in her writing. Um, so think about those things when you watch it, um, and then come back. So the first assignment that's part of this lecture, kind of the short answer thing that I was talking about during class time, is I want you to describe an instance of the dangerous single story in your life. You've heard Chimamande Adichie, you've gotten some information about worldview, so how has this occurred for you um and it could be on either side it's either from you being um not realizing someone else's experience or someone not understanding your experience and describe that in you can take as long or as short you want if it's one sentence that's fine but post that to brightspace before uh, the beginning of class on friday So when we recap Adiche, uh, I'm emphasizing the fact that she kind of was focusing on literature, especially how she um, wrote her stories or how she had to unlearn some things in order to write her stories and center kind of Nigerian-based information. Um, but the worldview, as well as the danger of a single story, can be applied to multiple arenas. So this is your teacher's claim and you are definitely there to argue with it um, and you know go back to our rules of discussion about it, which we're probably going to do on Wednesday's class, um, is that higher education, which I am going to go back and forth be saying, between saying the word higher education or the academy or the university, they're all going to be the same thing for me. So uh, higher education um, also seems to be uh, affected by the single story the single story in the academy works a little bit differently um, than Adiche but it's still this idea of there is one way to embrace knowledge there's one way to teach knowledge or and even one way I'm kind of being a little you know simple on but it basically all tries to emphasize kind of narratives of the winner narratives of kind of like an op, um, optimistic history of a certain population of people 
and often and you know I feel like in 2018 times may be changing but you can tell me if it doesn't or in your experience that it hasn't um but it tends to be the story or the single story that uh prides or gives a lot of weight to European people I can also give gender analysis that tends to be European men get a lot of play in how we understand uh, everything the academy. Not just history, um, but literature, science even, tends to definitely emphasize that the single story of the academy is a European male perspective. So that's the worldview that I'm trying to emphasize we work on. So I'm trying to give this example in the next slide that when we learn history, we tend to learn from the perspective of European people. So we talk about the United States and its uh, founding, to use a word. Um, So they, European people, were looking for a new world. They, European people, they moved westward. So manifest destiny and going from sea to shining sea. Um, They, European people, built this country and this is why we are here today. Um, They won against different people different groups mostly we focus on in the revolutionary war period they won against the british which was a distinguishing moment about what kind of quote-unquote white people we're talking about um but they also there's or at least there used to be a lot of um showing that they won against the natives And I'll go into this a little bit more later, but when we think about Native Americans or Indigenous Americans, depending on what language you want to use there, it also tends to be connected to this. They're fighting against nature because Native people are more natural than rational man, as well as using words like savage. They won against the savages because land is savage, people are savage. But this will come up a little bit more later when I talk about the periods of enlightenment, age of discovery, etc. So the academy tends to run on that single story. But as we were saying that there's other ways of reading history, there's other ways of reading literature, there's other things that we can emphasize. It doesn't have to be from that since there are multiple worldviews in the world. So European worldview is one of many, particularly in an American context when there's a lot of groups of people living in the United States. So from the perspective of indigenous folks, the story of white persons coming and, you know, finding land and destroying the natives wouldn't benefit or at least even give an actual account from the side of the Native Americans. If we, you know, are teaching and we're centering a Native American history with Native American values, then the story of how quote unquote America was built, created, and has come to be today doesn't look very glorious, actually. It's about basically alien invasion. And so if we think about the story that way, about alien invasion, and it goes to the questions that we had before. What questions um, do we ask then? If we're like, the history of America is a history of alien invasion. 
who are the invaders who are the you know people who are from the land how did they feel when the aliens came um and we can start talking about it differently as well as what questions i'm just basically going on that what questions are we asking and how can we definitely see and envision these histories from multiple sides So a quick thing I wanted you to look at is there's a picture of, um, it's kind of a picture from maybe the 1910s, 1920s of a woman figure who is holding the American flag. So she's like Lady Liberty or one of those iconic kind of symbols of Americanness, And she is stirring the melting pot of all the peoples who came. When we actually look into the pot itself, um, it's probably white-ish looking people, but it may be someone from Mexico, I think is in there, Italian, German, and this person with the knife, who I'm not sure who's that supposed to be. Uh, during this time, there was a lot of negative things towards Irish folks, so it may be a representation of an Irish individual there who's bit violent, which is probably why the american um female representative representative has a frowny face on her but essentially she's trying to stir the melting pot and giving everyone equals rights when they're getting into this citizenship of america so i wanted to show that kind of imagery to give more uh context essentially to what is an american is an american these white-ish looking individuals um and that may be true, uh, but it's also reflecting onto this uh, quote that I have, that until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Um, and so this goes into that idea of power as well. Who controls what we know about history? Who controls how we learn about history? And if that's true, if history is always going to glorify the hunters, then what histories are we lacking? What histories are we missing? Who isn't represented? And if they're not represented, does that hurt what we can know? So that means our knowledge essentially is also limited. And we have to, you know, give a little thought to that. The thought to the fact that our knowledge is piecemeal and is curated by people in power now a question that comes from that too is why why is the knowledge of the united states or the knowledge of any sort of kind of cultural thing um curated who does that benefit does it benefit the individuals who live in the united states to only know from a certain perspective does it benefit certain people in power or is it just coincidence? So then I am also claiming, so this is a Jennifer claim, that Americans have an Americocentric worldview. And so when I talk about Americans, we tend to uh, mean that it's people born in the United States, 
it also has this implicit meaning so this kind of like understood but not said out loud meaning that it's mostly white people and so before that um we would claim that it was western european people and then if you actually look at the kind of constitutional history of the united states um through laws as well and any sort of legal ramifications for a long time americans were mostly either people who were wealthy and wealthy had a different meaning than it does now um, but somebody connected to property owners and landowners. And so if you didn't have land, let's say in 1600s, then you weren't even part of what would come to be the United States. You weren't a citizen of that because you had no rights, because you had no land. So the idea of American definitely shifted over time. But if we say where it shifted to in 2018, it definitely was, it definitely is and still tends to have a white American meaning. And even though there are other people around who are not fitting that kind of idea of what a whiteness is, they still have to relate to it in some way. And it tends to be either negative or almost or close to rather than um, they can be American on their own terms. And of course, this is, I'm going on kind of like general ideas of how it works in some ways we can find evidence of that, not necessarily how people are personally feeling. This is, once again, those worldviews that are um, group um, understood. Yes, there may be, you know, 20 or 25 percent of white individuals may not feel this way personally but the world tends or the society they live in tends to operate this way and so i made my little this is supposed to be more of a funny um cartoon about the map of how americans see the world but we can give some conversation about that um in class if you want so my next little assignment here is when you think about the americocentric worldview i want you to go to this link and there is a link of things that for an international individual someone who is not born in the united states how they are reacting to certain american customs so i'm asking do you agree with the list provided as in do you feel that these things are true for someone who is an american um or someone who has been living in the united states for a certain amount of time so please write a brief reaction to the list and if you're not the first um i want you to respond to other people's commentary on that and this is the end of 1a so hold on for two seconds or take a food break and 1b is coming up soon welcome back this is your professor, Jennifer Williams, and I want to welcome you to lecture 1B, where we're going to talk about kind of the history of this Americocentric worldview and some of its early um, concepts and ideas that kind of basically get us to where we are today and how we understand certain things, particularly about the racism and the sexism um, that you may um, encounter in the contemporary experience. So first off, we think about you know where at least a white 
uh, individual can trace their ancestry from. And I'm not going back too far because we're doing like the modern American worldview. You can trace some other things back to like Roman and Greek philosophy, as well as uh, Christian or Judeo-Christian um, frameworks. But for now, I'm kind of doing a modern focusing more on science and political um, worldview. Um and how that developed or the concepts that we can see have pushed through time to create basically what the current American-centric worldview is. So when we look at a modern, and modern I don't mean like today, but the last 200, 300 years, um, Euro-American worldview, it draws from a lot of cultural, scientific, political developments during the 15th through 18th century. So this is the period of time that I think we probably learned the most about in school. You know, it really is like one day there was planet was, you know, molten rock and then it formed things. And then once you skip her through in the 1500s um, and learning about people like Galileo and things like that. So during that time, there's the scientific revolution um, where science, of course, is taking off and people are becoming very curious about the quote unquote natural world. As well as this is during the age of discovery and this is where Christopher Columbus and all his folks are hanging around. Um, then, which connects to the age of enlightenment, which is around that 1700s to 1800s period of people questioning rational or becoming rational, so to speak, and questioning traditional thought and tradition usually connected to uh, the church most times. Um, sometimes just more like kind of the superstition of the previous or we could call sometimes the medieval era um, as well as the age of European imperialism and that's basically just how a lot of these ideas spread across the world and how it was spread across the world and so the major shifts in the worldview in Europe that was happening during this time um, it is these kind of three major points that I'm making. So it's curiosity about how the world works, um, an idea of an ordered universe, or even just the idea of things being ordered in general, as well as the um, prominence or the scientific method gaining a lot of traction because um, these are all new things that were going um, during those three major periods that I have mentioning in the previous slide. So curiosity about how the world works um, led to a lot of travel. So this is people going to the Americas, going south um, around Africa, the Cape of Good Hope, trying to find other ways into India. And they were doing this not just because, well, a main reason was because they wanted to find different ways to bypass the spice trade from China to Europe because that area was starting to be heavily taxed. So one reason they wanted to find other ways to India was to avoid that. But another thing was the idea of experimentation. How can we, you know, start funding people to basically just see if we can? Um, and so this became a high age of experimentation on a lot of things, not just travel, but also um, just basically any scientific thing that we basically have today, uh, as well as there was a lot of documentation and reporting um, around this period, I think, and maybe earlier, um, the printing press. 
um, becomes a major invention. So being able to print things, document them, and distribute them widely to other interested parties becomes one of these popular ideas um, that people start to be part of. So not only are you, you know, there is more literate people in the world, um, these literate people are passing ideas back and forth around to each other so that everyone starts to learn essentially more about their world and do things with the learning, question how they learn. So that's why curiosity is a major uh, concept ideology during this time. Next is the idea of the ordered universe. And this may not be necessarily a worldview shift, but a worldview shift on who is part of the order of the universe and maybe who or what is not anymore. And so there was a previous um, European philosophy was definitely about there's God and then there's man. Um, and in this kind of time period, secularism, I guess you could say, is on the rise. Or at least what we now in the United States keep emphasizing is the idea of separation between church and state. Um, and so this is probably more of a separation between church and science, we could say. And so their idea that nothing in this world is mystical anymore, since man um, is a highly rational being, that everything can be understood as long as we, you know, observe it, which will be the next point in the scientific method. So the universe can be understood it is no longer a mystical location anymore it can be rationally um picked apart it can be rationally experimented on and we can figure out what's going on in the world around us so our world you shifted from basically like oh that tree just grows to people looking at actually how trees grow when they come from a seed and they go up and do all this stuff not saying that people didn't know that before but it became the um you know the philosophy of the day to ask the questions of how things work this also leads to this idea of reason over tradition and tradition as i was saying earlier is connected to the church as well as kind of the common rules of how people did things um and so reason or being able to make um inductive and deductive understandings of the world became how people start to function in their universe rather than just accepting what their parents said their grandparents said what the king said or what god said so the universe you know how people engage with the universe shifted and it became more about how do we think about things rather than just blindly so to speak accepting how things are and the most important i guess is the idea of the scientific method and so this emphasized a lot of the points that I'm saying that I said earlier. So that human reason is value or valuable and should be prized among other ways of understanding the world. And so that's when we come into this way of thinking, when we think about our worldview, which actually really affects how we do knowledge today in the academy, is that your you know, how you think, how you rationalize 
is one of the highest values to our society. And so we value the words of the opinions of people who think. Um, secondly, uh, a lot of things, oh, sorry, the scientific method. And I'm not going to go into that because I haven't had my own science class in a while, but you know, the kind of five or six ordered steps of you make a hypothesis, you test your hypothesis, etc., etc. right? And so the idea, which was definitely used for science, which was used for how they started to look at nature, then they started to apply to society. So then it became this kind of experimentation, documentation, reporting, making theses and hypotheses about the way people worked. And that was a very interesting shift as well and how a different way of using the scientific method. And this is all coming during the age of enlightenment. Um, and so if they're looking to, well, our government um, is this way, maybe we should experiment with governance. Maybe we shouldn't have a king. Maybe we should have a government of the people. Um, became kind of things that people started to uh write about and talk about publicly without being killed luckily um also or just like if man um is a rational being then what does rational beings do which leads to kind of value-laden questions now and this is a quick aside this also becomes problematic right because since people are still very provincial um, in these days, like not everyone's traveling the world and experiencing other people since people are still kind of like within their own hundred mile bubble, um, their idea of what people should do gets rechecked by their society, gets maintained by their society because they're like, well, me as a rational human, you know, I should eat eggs every day for breakfast. Um, but, and everyone else is saying, yes, of course, rational people eat eggs for breakfast every day. Of course, it's a truth. But in reality, they were really reifying, making more real a lot of things that they kind of themselves did without having those oppositional or at least extremely, I would say, comparative to themselves, oppositional viewpoints. I'm going to get to that soon. Um... The other two things are humans, not God, should dictate social progress. And so a lot of it became this really human-centered approach of how they go about the world. Um, and lastly, just the idea that scientific thought, which I keep kind of emphasizing, becomes popular. It's not just for the few. It becomes how most of the people see the world or want to start to engage the world around them through a scientific method, through focusing and emphasizing the rational and reason. So the next few slides, I think I'm gonna go a little bit faster because you can read them. Um, but the thing that I focus on a lot in the next, uh, this slide, as well as basically the idea that I question and how the authors Moten Harney question the university is the idea of objectivity. So objectivity, I'm going to focus more on Rene Descartes, a French philosopher for objectivity, but there are other interpretations of where objectivity comes from, as well as why it becomes kind of a, you know, overarching idea of how we 
or at least how we say or how um, people trained in United States universities say they should see the world. Um, and so Descartes um, is a famous person. You, he's a mathematician uh, as well as a philosopher. You see him around. Um, and so one of his well-known phrases which I'm not going to use the Latin at all. Please look that up for yourselves on how to pronounce it in Latin. But it basically translates to, I think, therefore I am. And so this connects back to the idea of human beings are really like, or at least European human beings at the time, are really considering themselves to be uh, the prime, um, you know, location of knowledge, or at least knowledge creation. And he comes to this like kind of conclusion of I think therefore I am based on that there's nothing or his senses and all of the other things. The only thing that he can trust is that he can think. So like other people can fool your senses, other people can fool your eyes. That happens all the time. You can fool your nose, you can fool your mouth. Um, you probably can fool your brain, but he's kind of emphasizing that. But your brain is still thinking even though it's being fooled. So... Jennifer's two problems with Cartesian logic, or at least this phrasing of Cartesian logic um, in the context of the time that he wrote it, is that it's definitely anthropocentric. Once again, that it's human. It's very humanistic. And this is to give kind of, um, once again, an alternative theory of how to interpret that. We today tend to be very human centric in this idea of do we need to protect other aspects of nature, um, you know, gets kind of pushed second because human first. Um, but yeah, so anthropocentric that defines the, hum the European man, particularly because Descartes was a European man, as the only entity endowed with reason. So animals don't have reason the plants don't have reason nothing else is rational except for man and we have to kind of emphasize in this time european man because as you see later on other people who do not value what they're valuing these ideas of the human as being prime scientific thought is good and other people who are still doing what they would consider the traditional based upon some sort of mysticism or mysticalness in their nature are not seen as equal to european man and then we've got the problems um so my second problem with cartesian logic is that it becomes the premise the basic premise for much of western philosophy and science everyone starts to use this basic premise in order to understand the world and anyone who provides kind of what we would call irrational thought or even um emotional thought which is where we get our gender issues from right emotional thought becomes secondary or undervalued or no longer seen as necessary or valuable to society and so rational becomes what we all need to do in order for it to be a good society in order for us to be good people it has a moral question or a moral um you know essence to it while anything that's not that is devalued and considered, you know, un, uh, subhuman or not human enough for how the new people of this time wanted their society to be. Um, also, if you see on this picture, there's an individual called Queen Christina of Sweden. 
and I just want you to look this individual up. I never knew about her before I looked at this picture. So if you look at the picture, it's Queen Christina is the dark hair woman figure on the, or my current left-hand side. And then there's a random person in the middle. I don't know who that is. And then on the right is supposed to be Descartes looking kind of shady. Um, so those two people, Queen Christina seems pretty cool. She gave up the throne and was just basically like, I'm going to be a smart person in Rome. It's interesting. So continuing with objectivity, you have a quote that I wrote in my dissertation oh so many years ago um, about the myth of objectivity. So objectivity basically isn't true, right? If we talk about everybody has an individual worldview, then how can anyone really be objective if they're only perceiving reality, perceiving universe from all the kind of cultural um social things that they've gathered over their lifetime from their you know own geographic location no one really has an objective thought we have things that may be close to having a common standard um can be you know accepted by the majority but the idea of objectivity is still um at least in 2018 terms unobtainable um however that's what was proposed for many 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 of years um during the european imperialist project that was going on in 1500s and onward so with that um having a bunch of humans who think they are rational who think they can who are curious about the world and um they're having political revolutions essentially in these areas as well one of them being nationalism and nationalism is an interesting concept and you're also kind of realizing that nationalism is fairly new the idea of having love of a country or connected with people who you've never met but who may also say they are the same country as you um or you know countrymen country person as you um and we all have a kind of similar connection because of we're born in, you know, X geographic space. It's a new idea because like I'm saying, people tended not to go too far or understood much beyond their um, hundred mile, maybe even hundred mile area. And so feeling a sense of camaraderie with someone far away, just because you all are in this kind of one location, um, under one political entity, be it king, monarchy, parliament, whatever, is a new and very during time of imperialist um, notion. And so we're having a bunch of people, like I said, they're curious, they're scientific, they're objective, and they think that they and their people who are living in the same region are great you know, they have an optimistic view of themselves and their, you know, their cultural mores and norms. Then they go with that curiosity and rationalism to other places in the world and decide that one, they need political, they need goods, not political, but they need economic goods. Um, and two, that they're going to apply their thought 
their nationalistic worldview now to anyone they meet. And this is where we get to this idea of ethnocentrism. Also could be their similar ideas, cultural relativism. So it's the basic definition that I've written down regarding one's own ethnic group, one's own national group, one's own cultural group, one's own race. Race hasn't appeared yet, but it's coming is better than another groups and or seeing another culture through the lens of one's own culture so comparing worldviews and often in being ethnocentric you're finding the culture that you see is lacking or they're not as moral as you they're not as human as you they're not as french as you um and that becomes a factor in how people go through the world how people engage with other humans that they meet in other places especially how people from western europe particularly so britain france germany portuguese spain interact with africans that they meet for you know certain uh economic purposes So with all these things put together, when they went to other parts of the world and bringing their scientific thought, bringing their nationalism, bringing an ethnocentric view of the world, um, basically they, they extended, often with force, the culture of themselves, of other Western European people, Western Europeans, Um, to Africa, to Asia, to uh, North and South America and Central America and the Caribbean. So the culture of Europe has spread through the world because of kind of these cultural revolutions that was happening within Europe and with, you know, economic force as well they had resources and money and certain technologies like boats and guns um they were able to change basically how everyone else saw themselves and how europeans saw themselves so they could see themselves on the hierarchy of man so to speak right because with conquering quote unquote with harming individuals of other locations by taking over their land by claiming territories as their own colonizing many different areas of the world um then they were able to keep that kind of ordered universe but in their ordering now instead of like i was saying before it was god than man now it's man and man having implicit ration or implicit Um, thought of man like white man European man so to speak Um, and then everybody else who is not that is othered is less than is less than human than these individuals so I'm being slightly tongue-in-cheek for some of these things but you know they brought their scientists their teachers and other learned individuals doctors lawyers etc to study the world to understand the world to interpret things from their worldview 
right? So their worldview with all these kind of extra concepts in it, right, made often a um, combative relationship with who they connected with. It often wasn't to understand and to be open-minded, as we said, but instead um, to compare, to force essentially these hierarchies. Um, so they use their science and with their science, they increased their military and economic power. Um, and they believed once they encountered these cultures that since they were still traditional, the other cultures that they encountered and the European man were rational, that, that they were the most moral, they were the most right. And so we still have this very religious conversation within it even though it's not like anyone's really talking about it that way they're kind of just like well we have these things therefore we you know have advanced further than other folks but that still makes a very you know hierarchical conversation because progress is a construct as well what is forward for humanity that's that's not a real thing forward is what you know, people have put in place, have thought to be the future of human. And so if Europe puts themselves as the, you know, the future of what all humanity should be, they essentially put themselves on a higher location than everyone else. And because of their military and economic power and some political power, as well as a group of people agreeing with them, they tended to enforce and enforce them as saying, yes, a lot of times it was through the gun. Sometimes it was through other means. Um, there's a lot of conversation about that is through the Bible. Sometimes it was just through uh, looking at the political reality that your people are being dominated by these people. Um, that cultural changes um, were happening throughout the world. That the idea of double consciousness that um, Du Bois presents much later than what the period I'm talking about, but he still says it is happening to a lot of people throughout the world that they now have to look to Europe for anything. And so that changes how everyone in the world starts to view themselves and view what the world looks like. And that's when like Europe changed a lot of how the world actually functioned. And in the next picture, you see, once again, this is another stereotype representation of some people. Uh, this is definitely at the end of kind of this period I'm talking about. But there was a poem by Rudyard Kipling, the same person who wrote the Jungle Book, called The White Man's Burden. And so the poem was trying to get the United States to be part of a war in the Philippines or something awkward like that. But essentially, it becomes this... The poem doesn't, but the the essence of the poem, the what's the under you know the underlying meaning of the poem, is still around even today. The idea that these great British and United States um, have to carry the world on their back up to uh, the picture is a little cut off, but they're walking to civilization, and so you see they're like walking against the barbarism and oppression and ignorance which apparently is only part of these non-american non-british countries that they have this in their country and they have to walk against all of this 
in order to reach civilization. And so you see that there's words on some of these people. There's China, India, Cuba, Hawaii, um, that they're all, you know, not civilized people and are caricatured kind of negatively. Um, while the, it's the burden, essentially, of America and the UK to bring the savages and you see some of them are even presented small kind of like childlike but they're bringing them to civilization and that becomes an interesting framework welcome back this is your professor Jennifer Williams and now I'm going to go to the last part um, in looking at the reading by Fred Moten and Stefan Harney um, called The Undercommons in the University. And so going back from all these other things, talking about the university, talking about the scientific uh, revolution, age of imperialism, all the other kind of parts in European history basically affects the United States. It affects the United States political philosophies, United States economic and social beingness, as well as the university system within the United States, which also was affected um, and influenced by European universities. So they basically took concepts that were happening, took ideologies, to be more clear, that were happening in Europe, brought them to the United States. And that's where we are today. Also, I'm talking about just some of the, you know, business models that are now plaguing to give a negative connotation to it, um, American universities, and what is our critique, um, if there is one, that we can have about everything that's going on. And I'm using critique here, not necessarily being like it has to be negative, but um, I think a better word probably I should use is how do we analyze the current situation um, in order to affect, you know, our learning process. So in starting 1C, going back to the idea of worldview, um, one of the most popular questions people are asked in the United States, and I brought this up earlier in the lecture, is what do you do and what do you want to be, right? And so that goes to like, that's the worldview. What type of worldview, this is rhetorical, you don't have to answer this anywhere except in your own head. But what type of worldview does the what do you want to do, what do you want to be question, what worldview is that? Whose world, you know, what is emphasized? What parts um, does it actually show? And so I would say that that worldview is kind of a worldview of, and I think I said it before, like someone who values someone's occupation. And we do value work in the United States, like in some other places, people might ask, well, what's your hobby? And I know that's a secondary question in the United States. People do ask, what's your hobby? Um, but a lot of times it really is those kind of what you do for a living helps people place themselves in relation to others. So like some people, and I've heard it in a kind of a positive way too, that they use it in order to find commonalities so like, I'm a lawyer, you're a lawyer, we can hang out together. But then on the same note, people are also like, but then I can network, which goes back to our, you know, prime existence 
in that worldview is the relationship of your job. Anyway, the university is part of that worldview, definitely, or at least lately it is, because it's often, and this is what you guys are saying in class as well, that the university offers a place to fulfill that answer. So what do you want to do or who do you want to be? You come to the university and you can major in whatever, whatever, and that's what your job will be. Um, And then people find value in that. People find value that you as a student are going to the university um, for whatever reason, for whatever job, because at least it seems that the university itself is valuable for being a occupation producer. Um, And so my question then is, but what about just knowledge or what about I'm going to do passion or I'm going to go to school for my passion, not for my occupation? before you know I want to and I don't want to like limit art and stuff to that kind of passionate stuff because you might want to be a scientist and then end up a chef and that's because you're passionate about science but you're making money by cooking you know um but what if the university isn't or shouldn't always be about benefiting a worldview that only values your occupation. How do we even talk about that? And even talking about passion, not just as kind of like an intrinsic feeling, but passion being your personal identity or your personal identifiers. What if that's your passion? Can you use the university for that? And so my question, and this is one you do have to answer, so there'll be a little section in your bright space, is, is there a wrong way to be a student? Is there a wrong way to be a professor? What is a failed professor? What's a failed student? And can students and professors fail on purpose? And I really want you to like delve into that question. And I'm not just trying to be like, you know, if you don't do the work, you're a failed student, but really um, in compare if you know what the worldview of the university is then how do you not do that well right how do you operate differently but still kind of hang out in this space and I think probably it'd be easier for you to even think about what's a wrong way to be a professor so I guess instead of teaching you knowledge I just sat in front of the room all day Um, but I don't know, some teachers do do that. (laughs) I'm making a joke, but you know, just think about those kind of like, if you know what the essence of being a student is or what the, you know, the actual work, so to speak, of a professor is supposed to be when everything runs smoothly, then what are those practices, what are those instances, events that make someone not function properly in the university, that makes someone not um, fall in line with how the university works? What does that person look like to you? And that's how I want you to answer that question. So to get into the reading, And the reading, I know, is dense. So if you read it and you're like, I don't know what Milton and Harney is saying, that's fine. They are 
very very you know they like to hear themselves talk essentially um but try your best so when you read the selection um the two authors are definitely trying to present another way of seeing the university they're coming from their worldview and so i'm saying their worldview is probably really more of a socialist perspective so when they analyze the world they're really focusing on things such as labor production and critiquing capitalism and so that's how they're trying to engage with the idea of the university and you know it's also kind of self um understanding how they because both of them are academics how they are acting in the university currently so they're trying to explain that and so like i'm saying they kind of like to hear themselves talk essentially this is a thought experiment this isn't uh i mean they're making salient points but it's really like how do we answer a personal question for themselves as well as for other people like them so this idea of if you're so critical and i wrote the state in the powerpoint but it's like so critical of any sort of like standard system that you're part of like the university if you're so critical of it you know always saying things about why this person you know didn't do that why are we selling books why are we giving tests why are we even teaching anything at all then why are you professor it kind of is similar to the line of if you hate the united states so much then why don't you leave that kind of conversation um so they're trying to give actual thought um to that and they published it and they actually published it um open source so it's free to distribute it's free to give out to anyone um which is once again they're trying to do differently because a lot of times the university is part of that um economic gain of selling literally knowledge through books and articles but they're trying to subvert that through giving out this for free anyway so they're trying to center on the tension of being in the university but not of the university so and i'm going to repeat that phrase because that's actually from the book Uh, So when you read the selection, I want you, first of all, to you might have to read this a few times. And I know you don't have time for that, but please try read it at least twice, because the first time is just going to be like, I don't know what they're saying. And the second time you might be able to read it for understanding. And so I have a little list of how to read it. Don't read it in order, or at least that's my suggestion. You can read it in order. But I found that if you read it um, out of sequence, you might under some you might understand some parts a little bit better and remember this is only chapter two um chapter one in the introduction in my opinion weren't really helpful um for understanding chapter two but do you kind of get the drift so when you read it um definitely read the sentences by themselves this isn't kind of you know reading comprehension read the whole point and try to get it yeah they're really more about good 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 sentences um, and so you might find a couple of those. Their sentences also have a lot of fluff. So like a lot of words that really don't need to be there. And this is me having my own critical editing lens with it. Um, so when I was reading it, I was like, but you have like 30 yamas in one sentence. So definitely practice on finding subject and verbs and then ignore kind of the commas that might happen within it. So, you know, they'll do a lot of the subject comma but maybe kind of sort of up town round circle circle comma the verb object so skip all that middle stuff and just focus on subjects and verbs 
and then on my PowerPoint slide, you can read what sections to read first, second, and third, as well as a part that you just need to skip altogether. Um, you can read it, but I don't think it actually adds to the conversation um, that we're having today. So, Moten and Harney, as I was ending, the university is not for enlightenment right university is not for enlightenment um and they're criticizing a few things um one of them being the that the university still kind of talk about enlightenment and by enlightenment i mean like kind of just the liberal arts mission of a lot of colleges that they're training uh individuals to better themselves so to speak um so they're critiquing that that even though people say it no one's actually doing it and that is really about professionalization today um the, also the thing that they're critis criticizing is the idea that the university is there to disrupt uh the status quo and instead they're saying this is not what professors do even though professors say they're being critical that in reality that they're just kind of talking <laughs> and they really do have something against these people who are like we're critical um and they question it's kind of what they keep emphasizing they keep questioning things but they don't actually get at the root of an issue they kind of have surface level um conversations about what is wrong but they're not delving into and i would argue moton and harney are trying to say those kind of classic isms of today the racism sexism misogyny homophobia transphobia they're like these people aren't getting at that that in reality they're just kind of questioning you know why don't we have egg sandwiches for breakfast instead of this oatmeal um and that's how they're critical so they're kind of having that kind of conversation um, the other thing they're saying is that the corporatization, how the university is having this business model, isn't necessarily new and is actually a fundamental aspect of the university since its kind of European creation in the medieval era. And so the university, and this is a quote I have, is always a state strategy. It's always working for the benefit of the state. And so I think I didn't talk about this, but just that connecting to kind of the nationalist conversation whatever the state is the body of political governance of an area um you know tends to be those with the most power tends to be not always um and so the university is just working for that which i would say for our own personal example it's a very interesting um relationship there's been a lot of uh, conversation within the faculty if you haven't heard about the connection to Silicon Beach and the university that this university once again values the whole person values encouraging knowledge encouraging faith encouraging justice Silicon Beach so what is there attention there should there be attention there is the Silicon Beach or kind of that high money part of the state so to speak is that just state strategy that the university is bowing down to or should we look at it a different way Moton and Harney is definitely like they're just you know once again the same old looking towards money looking towards power 
for their value and not, you know, enlightenment or the betterment of humanity. More of their main points, and I'm always, you know, I'm saying all the same things in the same sentences. Their main points um, is the university is for the professionalization of both the faculty and the students. And so the faculty are also part of this professionalization process um, in the fact that we have to, you know, publish, we have to teach, we have to write, um, we have to work on committees, we have to be part of the administration. And so this is all professionalization. And so the idea of faculty being thinkers um, doesn't seem to be part of this new business model, allegedly, according to Moten and Harney. So um, and going back to the idea of critique, right? And so critique isn't for the benefit of knowledge. In a system of professionalization, it operates to isolate faculty and students as workers. So all we do is consume knowledge, produce knowledge, consume knowledge, produce knowledge, consume knowledge, produce knowledge, and that's it. And so you may ask certain questions, but they do not aim to abolish any of the oppressive systems, all the isms I talked about earlier. So teachers who are professionalized through this system now, or who work for professionalization, are just teaching for food, shelter, and health insurance. I added the health insurance part, but you know, just thinking of them as kind of laborers. Laborers of knowledge, yes, but still they're laborers. And this is where we're talking about that socialist um, perspective that Moten and Harney have. And then, because they are part of the system as well, even though they are also laborers, um, basically are brainwashing, to use that kind of term, as extreme as it is, others to also want the same thing. So we're not teaching anyone to want passion. We're not teaching anyone to go beyond, because he uses that word right a lot, right? Go beyond um, the institution in a or go beyond the state, go beyond the power structures. Instead, we just teach other people to want food, you know, work for food, work for shelter, work for health insurance. And we assume or we lie, essentially, that yes, you also have passion, but the main consequence of the education of the university system is still get that job. And so it's basically just retraining everyone for the status quo. So overall, Moten and Harney come and say, we're offering a different perspective. Not saying they're offering any changes. It's not, they can't change anything. Apparently they're kind of also submitting to the fact that they don't have much power. But for individuals, individuals who feel the same as them, that they are doing radical thinking and at sometimes radical action that is not just, you know, criticizing for criticizing sake, that is not adding to the status quo, that is not lying, so to speak, to the students. Um, they're saying that the university, while it is a place of corporatization, can also be a place of refuge, aka they would say a fugitive space. So that people who are in the university, but not of the university, can basically steal. And that's what that first line is, if you read it, if you read it in order, that you can steal from the university. Um, and, you know, they're not really like taking prisoners back to their houses, but 
not using the space in the way that the university says they should use it. And so instead of, you know, printing syllabi, they're printing pamphlets on how to do some radical act, right? Um, Instead of working on the tenure file, um, they are working on their poetry piece. You know, all those kind of not using the system in the way that the system wants to be used, so to speak. Yeah. Um, So he's saying, or they are saying, that there is a space, a group of people, a way of being in the university, and they're calling this the undercommons. It's going from the idea of the commons, and so the commons is basically what sounds like the common people, the masses, um, or at least the masses of the university. And this is those who are not the masses or the spaces that is not the public space, the public. Instead, it is the under commons. Um, This may be connected to something called the Lupin proletariat, but the Lupin proletariat, Lupin, I think with the M, not an N, Lupin proletariat, which another Marxist concept, are usually the people who are the, my understanding of it, and I could be wrong, so please feel free to correct me, tend to be, those classes of individuals who neither are laborers or the property owners or the business you know factory owners they are those outside of that completely so my understanding used to be like drug dealers (laughs) um sex workers used to be that kind of industry is how i was under you know how i learned it but there are other people who fit in the lump in that is not that so the undercommons feels like that kind of uh, similarity, but they may also be using it in a different way. But those who exist in the undercommons are in a way constantly at war with the university. They, problems, they problematize themselves and they problematize the university and they force the university to consider them a problem and a danger. But at the same time, these are the people that the university is not necessarily going to cook out either because you know, and everything, you need a little bit more radical element, right? You need the university to be, to still feel like that place of enlightenment with these people from the undercommons. So that's why there's always a tension. And they can always get new people from the undercommons, so don't ignore that. But there's always a tension between the university and the undercommons. And so one example of an undercommons thought or undercommons goal as i pushed here is not so much um and this is quote on page 42 not so much the abolition of prisons so when we think about that critique right um and everyone's critiquing that prisons are inhumane um that there's too many particularly americans literally in prisons and that that is horrible and that should be abolished And so there's a lot of conversation about that. Um, You should read Angela Davis. She has a really good book on that. Um, But what about the abolition of a society that could even have prisons at all? And so that's going into a more radical thought that, you know, really does go at the root of the issue. Like, why would this society even have prisons? That's horrible. Um, And instead, uh, but that thought, that radicalism of that thought, you know, really does go against kind of what the university could even stand for, what the university could even 
back because the university is a state apparatus. The university is still looking for, at least currently, its own power through finances, through um, influence. So it's not going to, you know, bite the hand that feeds it with a thought of people who are like, well, your society sucks. So that's an undercommons kind of way of viewing the world, which once again, going back to the self way at the beginning, an undercommons perspective, an undercommons worldview is definitely asking different questions, right? Um, it is presenting a different perspective that's not just simply, I hate the thing, but I hate what created the thing too. So in the undercommons, as um, Moten Harney tried to explain, is that these folks or this space or this identity that someone may own um, is refusing to ask for recognition. Instead, they're there just to disrupt, disrupt kind of the normal way of thinking, the normal way of acting in a academic space or even the way of normally acting in society. They're not settled into a fixed position within the university or within the state. They are kind of floaters. They don't always have to be students. They don't always be faculty. They don't always have to be, you know, even those kind of personal identities. They're movement. They have a lot of movement. Um, they're not invisible to capital because they are workers, of course. Um, but they recognize that they're, they don't have to be exploited by capital. So that's kind of they're trying to break from. I'm not going to be used to um, promote that kind of limited view of the world, the idea of I'm lying to the students about passion. Instead, they're going to do what they want, so to speak. And I'll let you read the other two on that one. So I've asked a question after you read the last two statements of why do you think marginalized people are attracted to the idea of the undercommons or even why do you think marginalized people are part of the undercommons in larger numbers than people who tend to be of the dominant um, uh, you know, ideology or a dominant identity, dominant cultural identity to be more clear. Um, so that's my question for that. And so the next and last part is Africana studies, right? This was a long connection going through years and years of history, going through a random Adiche TED talk to get to the topic at hand, right? So Africana studies tends to be a criticism or constant critique and to go even further, a disruption to the university and how the university has functioned. And so oh, many times in many departments, even though, like we're saying, the departments are of the university, are definitely getting funded from the university, but the content um, within, as well as what the departments, what the faculty, what the students are doing with their time, doing with their resources, is not always for the university's benefit like the university may kind of implicitly benefit because they appreciate the idea of having departments of diversity, right? And I'm going to talk more about why I personally don't like that term diversity in a later class, and maybe you can ask me during class um, so I remember. But Africana studies often 
works as a location of subversion. They're often there for the disruption of the common ways of doing things. And so with that, Africana Studies, you know, tries to ask certain questions, tries to recenter the idea of what is human, tries to allow space for having a different way of looking at um, the rational, because the rational doesn't have to be just what I think, but also what I feel, what I intuitively know, um, as well as the spiritual which, you know, definitely is an interesting LMU practice. Um, And so the discipline itself, how people look at the world from an Afrocentric or an African-centered, or we can even call an African-American, African-Diasporan, you know, Jamaican, um, Brazilian perspective, that's complicated. But any of those things to ask different questions, to promote different practices that both changes how individuals view their relationship to the state, how individuals view their relationship to the university, to society, as well to themselves. And so Africana Studies is kind of in this critical trajectory. (laughs) 